Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Peter Truckill. I write every week in The New European about the languages of Europe and about language in Europe generally. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to The New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of The New European. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. What did you do in the Ukraine war, Daddy? Oh, you know, I did my bit. Yes, but what did you actually do, Daddy? Well, I gave the oligarchs 30 days' notice that we'd impose sanctions on them so they could liquidate all their assets and not lose out, because that would be unfair. And then I gave them 18 months to sell their mansions and football clubs, and then I announced that we'd sanctioned 275 people, even though it turned out to be 15 people. And then I came up with a bespoke system for refugees, which means they'll have to prove that they're related to somebody already here and then pass some security checks. And then they have to leave when we want them to leave, maybe with a bit of fruit picking in the middle. And then I clapped the Ukraine ambassador in the Commons uh, while explaining uh, uh, sotto voce that I thought my constituency really had done its bit already in terms of taking in migrants from Eastern Europe. Oh, and then... I went on the radio and the TV and I said that Britain was leading the world in terms of its response to Ukraine. Daddy? Yes? I want to go and live with mummy. Coming up on this week's New European podcast, the foreign correspondent James Rogers on how the reign of Vladimir Putin might end. And we will put more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. Before that, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. 
Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. And if you want to support us to do more brilliant journalism like The 27, then please subscribe. We're at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And now I'm delighted to be joined by James Rogers, an Associate Professor in International Journalism at London City University, a former BBC foreign correspondent whose posts included Russia during the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Vladimir Putin. His books include Assignment Moscow, reporting on Russia from Lenin to Putin. James, has Vladimir Putin gone mad? That's a very good question, Steve. I think um, he certainly seems to have lost some sense of perspective. I think that um, the way that the first week of this war has gone has not gone according to plan by any means. And I wonder if, given what Putin's plans seem to be, which is uh, the annexation of a large part of the country, if not all of it, he somehow imagined after all his uh, historical talks and essays that all this idea of a, a united people between Russia, Ukraine and Belarus would mean that his troops, when they marched in, might get a much more favourable reception than it turns out they actually have. Do you think that the isolation that he's felt in the last couple of years, when obviously, you know, he's been away, uh, secluded from from other... I mean, there's speculation, isn't there, that he's not even had a a vaccine yet, and so he's had to be secluded from that. Do you think that isolation has, has played into this? I think it almost certainly has. And if you think as well, Stephen, you know, he's now been at the top of Russian politics, top of Russian power for 22 years. And any leader who's who's at the top, any president, any king, any prime minister who's in office for that long, well, surely you're surely going to lose some sense of perspective. I mean, how long is it since you've ever, uh, you know, taken public transport or gone to a shop or anything like that? And then, yes, as you say, in the last two years, even more so. Uh, You might remember a couple of years ago when the pandemic first broke out, um, Putin was actually touring a clinic in Moscow and he shook hands with a doctor there who was caring for COVID patients. It turned out the following week that that doctor had had COVID. And I think that probably sort of sparked this uh, desire to be kept at a distance from everything else. He's had very few in-person meetings. The story was a couple of years ago, if you wanted to meet him face to face, you had to do 10 days isolation uh, before you did so, stories of having to pass through a plastic tunnel uh, where you'd be sprayed with disinfectant. So, of course, you know, which of us hasn't felt slightly, you know, more remote from the rest of humanity in the last couple of years? But in his case, that seems to be particularly um, extreme. And you do wonder if, to an extent, he's been he's been living in his own world. And where where actually is he? Because obviously we've seen him in his massive table, which was in a hall in the Kremlin, I think. But he's got many residences, hasn't he? Where, where does he actually spend his time? I would imagine he's probably living mostly in his residence outside Moscow. I um, mean, in pre-pandemic times, that's what a lot of um, Russian, even Soviet leaders used to do. And they'd be driven in um, along the uh, the main thoroughfare from West Moscow into the city centre. 
um, in the morning, uh, a, an occasion which prompted the, the police to clear the road of traffic so that the, the motorcade can whiz by. Um, so I'd imagine that, um, and he may, obviously, you know, the Russian leaders have all got apartments within the Kremlin itself as well. So probably imagine dividing his time between them, but most of the time he's probably outside um, outside Moscow, I would think. And then, I mean, before we talk about his, his circle and who who could, you know, in ways that he could be stopped internally, I mean, is there also a sense that his popular, popularity has dwindled since the highs that it hit over the after the last invasion of Ukraine in, in, in 2014, the cost of living has gone up. You mentioned this in your piece, don't you? The living standards have, have, have ceased to, to increase. Is there a sense that he sort of needed a hit and he's gone back to the thing that's, that's given him hits in the past, which it is making war? Uh, I, I think that there's definitely elements of that. I think if you look at the first 10 years of his being in office, the first 10 years of this century, the thing that he was most associated with in people's minds was bringing uh, a degree of order to chaos after all the upheaval, all the instability that had followed the collapse of communism. He was a leader who was going to say, OK, right, we're going to calm down now. We're going to put things back in order. And at the same time, he was blessed with these soaring oil prices, which made the Russian economy boom. And many people had better living standards than they had ever had. So that was really what he's always been associated with. And then, yes, as you say, after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, the sanctions that were imposed then, of course, combined in more recent years with the effects of the pandemic, have meant that Russian living standards have been falling for the last seven or eight years now. So it's difficult. You know, if part of the trade-off was you're going to give up some political and press freedom. Now, Russia has given up pretty much all political and press freedom. But initially, you're going to give up a bit of this uh, and in return, you're going to get stability and rising living standards. If that was his deal with the Russian people, that is off now. Now, Crimea was massively, massively popular. Um, it's part of something that Russians really felt hold dear to their hearts. Uh, and as Putin himself said, you know, on the eve of the invasion, you know, for reasons he never fully understood, it was transferred by the Soviet government in the 1950s from the territory of Russia to the territory of Ukraine. That didn't make a massive amount of difference then because they were both constituent parts of the Soviet Union. But this has always been something since the end of the Soviet Union. This is something that a lot of Russian people are lost. They felt very keenly. So there's been a real sense with that annexation. He thought, well, this is going to cause me problems with the West. But you know what? I'm going to go down in history as the Tsar who got Crimea back. And I do wonder if he's trying more of the same this time. But for a lot of reasons, not least, because if you think about the contradiction here, Putin, on the one hand, is writing essays, giving talks about how Russia, Ukraine and Belarus are all one people. And then by the same uh, token, he's, he's trying to reinforce that by force of arms rather than, you know, by the, the great sense of liberation and, and voluntary reunification that one would really expect if that were the case. I mean, clearly, as you said before, I mean, it's universally acknowledged that even, you know, when you put aside the criminality and the inhumanity of all of this, it, it, it doesn't seem to be progressing as well as he might have expected. I mean, is he a great strategist, a great military strategist, or, or uh, is he just a, a brute? Well, it's, it's very interesting. That's a really interesting question, Steve, actually, because I was on um, on a discussion panel the other evening with the author Andrei Soldatov, who's uh, an expert in you know the influence of the Russian intelligence services. And he pointed out during this discussion that actually now Putin, despite coming from an intelligence, from a KGB background himself, seems to be relying more on 
military, uh, you know, on his military staff for advice on this. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. He is not, I don't think, a great military strategist. Um, I must admit, I've been surprised. I covered the wars in Chechnya in the 1990s, you know, when Russia was really at its weakest and the Russian state was having difficulty to reinforce its authority um, in one rebellious southern region. And I remember on one occasion, the Chechen rebel fighters, uh, whom uh, I was talking to with a group of other reporters, bringing out for us two young conscripts, Russian conscripts, national servicemen whom they had captured, and who they were basically using, you know, uh, as cooks and bottle washers. And you know, these two lads were absolutely terrified. And I thought, you know, in the meantime, to look at the way, the more efficient way that Russia conducted, conducted the military campaign in Georgia in 2008, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. I thought those days uh, are absolutely gone. The Russian army just isn't like that anymore. And yet, and yet, we see these pictures I saw in one newspaper a week ago, a really, really similar picture of two young lads who've been captured, looking pretty sorry for themselves, looking like they didn't know what they were doing there. Um, and you do wonder how well planned these been. I mean, obviously, it's impossible for us at this distance to, to guess the real conditions. But you've seen the stories of, you know, the Ukrainians very smartly here, um, you know, giving the Russian captives the opportunity to ring their, their families at home to let them know that they're OK, feeding them. So it does seem that there's been some real serious shortfalls of, of planning, planning which must have been in process for such a long time, despite what, you know, these protestations we saw in recent weeks about, oh, no, give diplomacy a chance. This has obviously been planned for a very long time, but not planned as efficiently, I think, as it might have been. And I'm presuming that thanks to, you know, the internet, smartphones, that this message that it isn't going well it is getting through to the Russian people. It, it, there's nothing really you can stop to, to can do to stop it getting through, is there? Clearly, he controls well, his own media, but, you know, there's a there's a media that he can't control. Yeah, it, I think this has been quite a sort of sobering experience so far um, for, for a lot of these people who think, you know, we've got social media now so that, you know, political leaders can't lie to us. Because in Russia, you know, you, you might remember, Steve, in the last few years, they've been building up this uh, this idea of their own internet. Mm. Um, they are able to limit access. You've probably seen um, that um, echo of Moscow, echo Moscow, the yeah. main sort of liberal radio station, TV Rain, the main important source of TV news, which has had a lot of run-ins with the authorities in the last few years. They've both been taken off air. And state TV is putting out this absurd, I mean, things really that are absolutely beyond belief, um, claiming, for example, that uh, the Ukrainians are bombarding them, some of the, the buildings that we've seen destroyed, that they've been done by the Ukrainians to, to make the Russians look bad. Um, really breathtakingly absurd things, but there are people, you know, there are people who do, a large parts of the electorate still, I mean, think about geography of Russia, TV has always been really the most important medium there. And even with the advent of, of, of digital media, that hasn't been dented quite as much as one might expect, particularly, you know, amongst certain demographics of the population. So I think so far, Putin largely is controlling the narrative at home. But... You know, the Russians love their digital devices. There are way, ways around this, and, and certainly the more sophisticated audiences, particularly in the big cities of Western Russia, will be trying to get another picture. But, you know, if we've seen Russia Today banned in Western Europe now, I personally think that was a really, really short-sighted move because we're going to see more moves taken against Western media, which is just going to limit audiences' understanding all around of what's going to be really uh, a devastating uh, war unfolding. So we come to the matter of, you know, who internally there is there as a check on Putin or, or to 
correct his course in some way. Near the start of this, we, we we mentioned we saw his top team in that hall in the Kremlin, the big table. They were talking over the case for invasion. It's fair to say that quite a few of them looked fearful. A couple of them looked very unenthusiastic, I thought. Is there anyone there who would be able to say, maybe it's time to negotiate, maybe this has gone far enough, or, or is it real death of Stalin type stuff? Are they still petrified of him even in his weakest moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you do start to wonder that. I was that um, that whole spectacle was breathtaking. I mean, obviously, the purpose of it was that, so that nobody can say later I wasn't up for this yes. because obviously now they've all been on telly in front of most of the world, showing that they were up for it, or at least saying that they were. Um, I think it's very difficult. I suspect this. I suspect it's very difficult for his inner circle to um, give Putin uh, advice. I don't think he necessarily. Uh, likes to hear things he doesn't want to hear, and so people may hesitate to mention them. As this goes on, now, we can talk about how much they're going to control the media at home. I thought it was astonishing uh, when, um, on Thursday this week, um, I beg your pardon, on Wednesday this week, Russia admitted that 500 soldiers had already been killed. That was really, really striking to me because they were adamant there'd been no casualties at all. I would imagine if they are admitting to 498, it was to be precise, then the real number is significantly higher. There is a sort of historical precedent for this going right back to the First World War when the newspapers in the UK were, were, were heavily censored. They basically lied about what the reality was going on. All those stories got home though. They got home uh, with the soldiers when they came home and said what was really happening. Uh, and now on social media, you're right, this can't be limited in quite the same way. So we can control the main narrative, but the lots of our own other narratives that are going to come through and challenge that. And eventually, <clears throat> that's going to be complemented by the stories from, from returning soldiers who are going to say, you know, it's really not like it looks on telly. And what about the, the generals who are carrying out these orders? Are they, I mean, is there any military independence or are they placemen of Putin who owe their careers to him? I would imagine, Steve, to be honest with you, quite a lot of them are pretty signed up to this agenda. I mean, if you think about, if you're a general now, what are you going to be? You're going to be at least in your 40s, probably in your 50s or 60s. You will be part of that same generation of Vladimir Putin who felt that crushing humiliation Mm. with the way the Soviet Union fell apart. So I'm quite sure that many of them, even, you know, if they've got occasional misgivings about strategy or tactics or logistics and things, as I say, I think it's pretty clear to say we're never probably going to know what the full invasion plans were. I think this was expected to be over within a few days. Uh, and I think I would imagine though, that a lot of the senior generals now are very much thinking, right, finally, finally, after 1989, after 1991, we are finally getting to redress the balance a bit and we're telling the West, you know, we've told you we're not going to put up with this and now we're not and we're showing that we mean business. So I think there's probably a good deal of support for this. I think, however, you know, things start to go badly it will be more difficult. I, I do, though, think that Russia will achieve its military objectives. We don't know exactly what they are. It looks increasingly as if that is basically annexation of about half of the country, including, of course, the major cities of Kharkiv and the, uh, the capital, Kiev. So those would be the terms, would they, if there was some kind of negotiated settlement which offered a face-saving way out? I think this is why we have to be pretty bleak about the prospects of this, you know, ending soon or, or ending in any sense well, um, because I think clearly the objective is some sort of reunification uh, of Ukraine and Russia, and unless and until he achieves that, and even after he does, you know, it's difficult to see, um, you know, what sort of negotiated settlement there could be. One would ha- can only hope that in the coming uh, 
weeks, there are even say days that there is some sort of agreement reached whereby you know people can stop being people can stop being killed. But um, it's pretty clear that um, even if things aren't going according to plan, the, the Russian army, because of its size, will presumably prevail eventually. And those uh, objectives are pretty ambitious and do not foresee, I don't think anything like the Ukrainian state as we've known it over the last 30 years. I mean, we can argue all we want about how effective the sanctions so far are or have been, especially our, our, our bit of them. Do you know what kind of effect they're already having on, on Russians and what, what the effects are going to feel like in, you know, two, a couple of months or by the by the summer? I think it's, it's going to be, I mean, the, the, there was an effect felt after the annexation of Crimea. You know, living standards have fallen since then, but absolutely nothing on this scale. If you think about one of the great privileges, that trade-off I talked about for economic growth, stability, higher wages in return for giving up some political freedoms, part of the deal was that if you didn't uh, complain too much about who was running the country, then you got to go on holiday to Turkey every year or you got to go and visit Paris. You know, think about what most Russians lived under for most of the last century. You know, it was an absolute dream even to go to another Eastern Bloc country, never mind to go further afield. I think people are going to feel that um, loss fairly keenly. Obviously, there's been less trouble in the last couple of years because of the pandemic anyway, but Russians were really, really keen on their package holidays. They love their digital devices. You know, it was one of the most, it was even, you know, the big cities in the West are full of the Apple phones, you know, the same queues that you see everywhere when there's a new iPhone issued and everyone, you know, the real enthusiasts are queuing up overnight to get the latest model. All that is presumably going to go. Uh, and if your job was also gone because of sanctions, uh, although it, it is true to say we, we have to be a bit cautious here, Russia has clearly prepared for this and has sanction-proof its economy to a degree. But once imported goods start disappearing altogether, um, you might have seen as well that you know IKEA, the major furniture retailer, has decided to close its stores in, in Russia. Maybe not for good, but for the time being, people are really going to notice things like this. And while some of them will say, "Okay, this is just because the West has got it in for us," because I've seen that on state TV, others are going to think, "Well, hey, wait a minute. You know, we may not have been great mates with the West, but we were sort of working okay for the last uh, ten or twenty years. What on earth is going on now?" Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how's it? It's hard to see how this ends in a in a positive way for for Vladimir Putin. I mean, is it is it going to be important for him to for him to end on his own terms? For him to step away? For him to you know step away in in some glory? Or I mean, or is he going to have to be removed at some point? Is you know, I mean, he can he can he can stay in control of Russia. I, th- I think till twenty thirty six, can't he? When what age is he going to be then? Eighty four. Yeah, he's going to be he's going to be eighty three. I think it's uh, because it, just because when his birthday falls. But it's um, this is something. I mean, this is a real dilemma in Russia. If you think right back through Russian history, there has never ever been an example of a leader who is alive, popular, and out of office. Hmm. Uh, this is just without precedent. Remember, you know, so there's, there's, there's not much. What could he do? I mean, conceivably, um, I mean, I don't, I, one doesn't necessarily get the impression that he wants to stay in power until 2036. But, you know, they're just, he's built this system which relies completely on him. You know, there isn't any really meaningful political party. There is United Russia um, in the Russian parliament, which is the biggest party, but it exists really just to support him. And there's no guarantee that it would continue to exist, you know, in, in the case of another leader. So his options 
in that sense, aren't really obvious. And I don't know quite what he sees for himself. I mean, he had an opportunity to go down in Russian history, as I say, as the leader who returned Crimea, even if it was um, at, uh, by force of arms, and even if it was a military adventure that brought um, sanctions from the West and poisoned relations with the West, it was nevertheless successful. It's really, really much harder to see this turning out quite so well because I just don't think that Russian public opinion, while there will be some people thinking, okay, well, we're teaching this Ukrainian government a lesson, we're teaching NATO a lesson, there is not, I don't think, any kind of massive, any kind of serious appetite among Russian public opinion for mass Ukrainian casualties. I mean, there is an election due in, in, in 2024, isn't there, as, the, as there is here. Is, is, that, is that bought and paid for already, or does that... Does well, I imagine so. I mean, I mean it's, it's just inconceivable in recent years that there's any serious candidate who could run against Vladimir Putin. Mm. And, 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 you know, the only one plausible candidate, Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption campaigner, of course, is, uh, is languishing um, in jail, uh, having barely escaped with his life after a poisoning attempt. So, um, I mean, obviously, some people are suggesting that, you know, given the timing of his, of his imprisonment, uh, that this was all getting him off the scene was all part of the plan for launching this invasion. There is no clear organised opposition. There are no obvious alternatives, even within Putin's um, entourage. So that's a problem. Yes, there's an election and some kind of election will take place. Uh, unless, of course, the war's still going on, he wouldn't be the first authoritarian leader to say, well, I'm really sorry, but you know, because of the national security situation, we're not going to have the election this year. Uh, I know you've got to go. It's absolutely fascinating. Let's end on a cheery note. What do we know about Russian nuclear protocols, James? You know, this this did appear to be on the table uh, at some point last week, but then I think, you know, there was, was talk that maybe there was a, a, a mistranslation or, 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 or something else, but... Could an order given by Vladimir Putin be refused? Is there some kind of dead man's handle that he has? You know, if he doesn't check in, the world blows up. What, what do we know about how all that works? I have to be honest with you, Steve, it's not an area of my expertise how that exactly works. Even, even in those days when the Kremlin was really friendly to Western foreign correspondents, <laughs> they never quite talked us through yeah. that one. We were never given a sort of facility, you know, come and see, sit down come at the long the, table. Come and see the football, yeah. Yeah, have a sit down at the long table and we'll go and get the briefcase and explain to you how it works. One would imagine that it, it can't be just launched at the whim of a single person, and one would hope that any of those those generals or other senior members of uh, of the, the, the military and political elite who would have to take part in such a decision would stop this happening. All that said, all that said, I think the West does need to proceed with caution because Russia is a nuclear power, and um, you know President Putin has made that very clear. I don't think there was any other way that we could. Uh, we could interpret that remark about on the broadcast he gave on the morning of the invasion saying, you know, if you try to prevent this, you will experience things you've never experienced in your history. I don't know. I think that was a pretty clear what he was referring to there. So I think the only thing we can sort of hope for for this stage is that the civilian casualties will, will be kept to a minimum, if that's a phrase that one can use at this stage. Uh, and that some sort of sense will prevail. But I, honestly, as somebody who first went to Russia, who first went there as a, as a young TV producer in the last summer of the Soviet Union, this, I'm convinced, will, the events of the last week will overshadow relations between Russia and the West for at least a generation to come. We'll leave it there. James Rogers, thanks so much for joining us. You can read more from James in the current issue of The New European to get full access to the archive of all the pieces James Rogers has written for us and to 
everything else in our archive, you can subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Before the Hall of Shame, I wanted to remind you about another excellent podcast from the New European. It's Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly. It tells the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites, a superb listen. It's available where you got this podcast. And now finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, isn't it? We put putrid politicians, pompous pundits, things that get my goat generally in here. And Anne Widdicombe is always in the Hall of Shame. Here's what she wrote about Vladimir Putin this week. Uh, When he looks at Joe Biden, he sees somebody obsessed with pronouns. He looks at the most formidable intelligence agency in the world, our own, and he sees a head who is obsessed with political correctness and diversity. That's what Anne Widdicombe wrote about Vladimir Putin. And it reminded me of something that Lionel Barber, who's the former editor of the Financial Times, something that he wrote for the New European this week. He wrote that he'd interviewed Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin in 2019, and Vladimir Putin had said this, Western elites have lost touch with their populations because of their preoccupations with issues like gender fluidity and homosexuality. The liberal idea, he concluded, has become obsolete. It's come into conflict with the majority of the population. And there we have it. That is Anne Widdicombe literally using the ravings of a psychopath to defend her way of thinking, echoing the words of a mass murderer. It's absolutely extraordinary. And we really are seeing these people for for what they are at, at this moment. And in a similar vein, I want to turn to Nigel Farage, whose speech to the far-right CPAC conference in Orlando contained these musings about Putin. Um, he said, Vladimir Putin wants to get back the Russian-speaking provinces of Ukraine into his own country. And when it comes to those eastern provinces, the two provinces in Ukraine, well, they are Russian speaking. And he also said this, we promised the Russians when the wall came down that we would not expand NATO and the European Union to the east. And they see that as an encroachment. We have got things wrong. We have not been honest in our dealings with Russia. And again, these are Vladimir Putin's talking points. Now, who says that we promised Russia that we would not expand NATO and the EU to the east. Well, Vladimir Putin does. And the people who agree with him, like Nigel Farage, they say that this promise was made by James Baker, the US Secretary of State, to Mikhail Gorbachev during talks about the wall coming down, the reunification of Germany, the, the whole process that led to the end of the Soviet Union. And what did Gorbachev say about those talks in a recent interview? He said... The topic of NATO expansion was not discussed at all, and it wasn't brought up in all those years. But there we have Nigel Farage and Anne Widdicombe unquestioningly reheating Vladimir Putin's talking points. Extraordinary. Of course, foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Sir Edward Lee. Uh, On Wednesday, while the Commons was clapping away for the Ukrainian ambassador, he released a statement saying this. Unfortunately, my comments this week welcoming the government's generous offer to allow as many as 200,000 Ukrainian refugees into the United Kingdom seem to have been misinterpreted or taken out of context. I don't want to do that. So let's just read them again and we'll see what's out of context here. This is what Edward Lee, Sir Edward Lee said earlier in the week talking about Pretty Patel. I do urge her to listen to the voices of people from Lincolnshire where we feel that we have really done our bit in terms of migration from Eastern Europe, where we are under extreme pressure. 
in terms of housing and jobs, extreme pressure they're under in Lincolnshire. Um, you know, there's some dispute about whether it was Coco Chanel or whether it was George Orwell who first coined the phrase, at 50, you get the face you deserve. Um, you'll have seen Sir Edward Lee, and I do tend to think that when you think like Sir Edward Lee, you do end up with the face you deserve, a face that looks like an old pig's bladder that spent 30 years being used as a football on Hackney Marshes before it was run over by a car, then it was run over by another car, then it was run over again by the first car, and then... It had a child's tape recorder stuck in its mouth playing a tape that just says, Britain is full on a loop. Uh, and then it ended up somehow, this pig's bladder with a tape recorder in it, getting stuck on the shoulders of a Guy Fawkes doll. And bizarrely, the Guy Fawkes doll was then duly elected to Parliament by the people of Gainsborough in Lincolnshire and activated when no one else in the Commons can think of anything stupid to say. I can think of no harsher thing to say about Edward Lee, no worse punishment for him. And Sir Edward Lee should take a long, long look at himself in the mirror. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to James Rogers. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. Owen, please give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. And do listen to our other podcasts. The 27 is available in this podcast stream. And Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do at The New European, please subscribe. It's at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social, join our Facebook readers group. On Twitter, you can follow us at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time, so long, snowflakes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.